Um, not a catalyst to try and make profit, trying to do some good work. That's always been the mission. That's why folks work on campaigns. The money isn't the thing that, that drives people. It's the passion for doing the right thing and helping people. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Russ Rampersat. Russ is the chief data officer at Catalyst, a well-known data trust that focuses on progressive politics, maintaining records on over 250 million voting age individuals in the United States. Russ has spent the last 12 plus years at Catalyst working his way up through a variety of jobs. I had met him originally on the Hillary Clinton for President campaign back in 2007 and was happy to catch up with him about his career, about Catalyst, and about related matters. If you're interested in technology and politics or careers in the progressive ecosystem, you should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Russ Rampersat at Catalyst. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Russ, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Russ Rampersad. I've been working in the political data technology sphere for a little over two decades now and have been working uh, alongside Nathaniel in the past as well. So it's great to speak to you again. I think we can delve in a little bit to my background, if that makes sense. Uh, yes, I tend to ask some follow-ups when people are that brief with their career, and especially when you, you mentioned working alongside me, since we overlapped at Hillary in 07, 08, but I think that's mainly where we've interacted, although a little bit between NGP Van and Catalyst back in the day. So I guess the, the broader background was born and raised in the DC metro area. My parents immigrated from Trinidad and Tobago Back in the 70s, grew up right outside the Beltway in Maryland. I've been working alongside politics uh, my whole life. So one of the campaigns that was very formative to me was that Hillary Clinton campaign back in 07, 08. Out of curiosity, what was your route to that? So you, I know you had gone to college in Maryland and you had done a number of different types of jobs before that. What was the career path that took you to actually a job with Hillary? Yeah. So it's actually a, a bit of a weird angle that I came in from. So I was at University of Maryland, went to school there, coming out of University of Maryland, started doing stock trading, um, was actually working with T. Rowe Price and realized that wasn't something that I was really interested in doing long term. So I ended up going out and playing poker. 
as a profession, if you will, at that point in time. That was back when the World Series of Poker was hot and, you know, everyone was was one of the biggest fads at that point in time. You must have been pretty good at it if you can contemplated that as a profession. Well, it, it came out of other card playing um, that I'd done previously, but it was something that was interesting to me and that I somehow had a knack for, but it wasn't what you see on TV. It wasn't, you know, as glamorous as all the TV shows and movies and things that you see there. It was work. You were sitting there, you know, 12, 18 hours a day just at a table. Wow. I had friends when I was a grad student at MIT who used to go play outside of Boston, but they could make real money in a weekend, I remember. Yeah. And depending upon the limits you were playing, it, it could get pretty high, sometimes walking out with, you know, $50,000, $60,000. But that's one of the things I was doing for a little while. Ended up coming back and, and just doing some other things, Forex trading and other things on my own. And then out of happenstance, you know, that kind of got boring because you were just sitting there by yourself. Um, so I was looking around for things to do. And a young woman named Adrian Benson actually uh, called me up and said, hey, why don't you come volunteer on the Hillary Clinton campaign? How did you know Adrian? I didn't. This was a cold call uh, that I'd gotten to come volunteer. Um, and as it turns out, Adrian is still one of my closest friends now. So it, it ended up being pretty good. But that was my entry into uh, working in the political arena. Were you a political person? Did you follow politics at that point? Yeah. So I'd done economics and political science in college. So there was interest there. I was more of an IR person at that point. So was looking at international relations in college, things of that nature. So the domestic stuff wasn't as much on my radar until I got into working on it. And that's just kind of where I've stayed. So you came in as a volunteer, I take it. What was it about that experience that made you continue in politics? So I came in as a volunteer and was working in the national headquarters of the Clinton campaign. It was the energy that was there. The volunteers came in, they were energized. It was something I'd never really experienced before, but it was invigorating. Um, you know, in the same way that you kind of get a thrill when you're at a poker table or other places, you kind of got that kind of adrenaline going as well. That kind of made me interested and made me want to come back. So I kept coming back, volunteering, coming back, volunteering. Then eventually someone made me staff. Who made you staff? I ended up working in the national field team with Clay Haynes, Adrian Benson, a couple of other folks there. And that was under the tutelage of Guy Cecil, who some folks may recognize from some things there. And former guest on this show. Former guest. And then beyond that, started being uh, introduced to other folks that were very formative in my career and like understanding what it meant to be uh, working in this field. So that's where I met Nathaniel Yu, met other folks like Robbie Mook, Mignon Moore, Harold Ickes, who I have taken as a, a mentor of my own over the years. So kind of. Are you still in touch with Harold? From time to time. Uh, yeah. I still talk to him from time to time, but yeah. He was the person I reported to most of the time when I worked there and definitely a character. Yep, definitely a character. Folks have probably know lots of the stories, but it's a legend, um, if you will. <laughs> when you think of him, what what do you think about him? Like, what sort of stories and what? how would you characterize him? So Harold is exceptionally smart. I think everyone knows that. Um, the first thing that always pops into mind is, uh, and I think this is true of most people in, in the area, is unique style of dress. <laughs> He tends to, you know, have a couple of buttons unbuttoned is not what you'd normally think of as a DC power player when you see him just on the street. But he, he generally 
only has a few buttons at the bottom of a shirt button period <laughs> generally yeah it's not what you usually picture is you know a power player in dc but that's that's usually what people see but you know the background you know all the things that he's done uh across the board you know even writing bylaws for the the dnc conventions everything else has been formative for me and he is the offspring of cabinet member for franklin roosevelt and he is one of the people who put together Catalyst in the first place, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's one of the interesting things about landing in a presidential campaign. And that's the only one I've worked on. But there are kind of some larger than life characters or people who are making their name for themselves and relationships that are formed by being in an intense situation that uh, sounds like you partook of to some degree. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true of, of campaigns just in general. Um, you know, I've worked on a couple others after the Hillary Clinton campaign. And that sense of camaraderie and, and family is something that always spoke to me, something that has followed me across the rest of my career. But, you know, that, that kind of trial by fire, like everyone in working towards the same goal was something that really spoke to me and, you know, made me want to continue working in politics. The myth that year was that the Obama campaign had the passion and the strong candidate and that Hillary's office was more like a grind. Did you see it that way? Personally, I didn't. I saw, you know, the enthusiasm that everyone had. And that was the thing that, you know, as I said, drove me back in day after day. I think that, you know, what you saw to some extent was there was, you know, a national fervor for someone like Barack Obama to step in and, and help lead the party, which for better or worse, you know, worked out for us. We got a lot of things done under his presidency. You know, I worked closely with folks in 08 post the primary and in 2012 as well on the Obama campaign. And, you know, I think we did some great things there. What was your path to Catalyst? So my path to Catalyst, after uh, working and managing a few campaigns, one of my former colleagues actually reached out, Taylor Terry, who was working in the analytics team at Catalyst and said, hey, there's an opening over here. I think this could be something that you might be interested in. So at that point in time, I was doing more admin finance type work with different organizations. And this was a role as an administrative assistant at Catalyst. So I went in, applied, and then ended up getting that position, but came into Catalyst as a person that was kind of working on filing papers and doing some administrative things, and then evolved from there. I think it's another thing that happens a lot in our space is that it often doesn't matter in the long run how you came into an organization as long as once you got your foot in the door, if you performed and if you did, then a lot of times you can rise up. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's true, especially of uh, the campaign mentality and of also you know progressive politics. Folks that want to excel and, and just continue to excel often rise just on their own merits. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, one of the things that I always say to folks is let your work sh uh, show your worth. And, and that's been useful in my experience. What do you think are your sort of skill strengths? Because it strikes me that like, there's gotta be a link between a mind that can be good at poker and one that takes to data and, and has some facility with that. How do you understand yourself and what you bring to Catalyst? So I'd say one of the biggest things is just having a sense of thinking about how people actually think. It's more about the psychology of people and understanding what motivates them, what drives them. And I think that actually leads towards 
folks having a better understanding of what the data actually tells them as well. Oftentimes, folks think of data as ones and zeros, but this is where you also have to take into consideration the other things that uh, are happening. What is the economy like? What is happening in the world in terms of current events? Those things have impacts on people and being able to kind of take those factors in alongside the hard ones and zeros that people may uh, be able to collect and understand often paints a slightly different picture than just looking at it in the abstract. For people who are not too familiar with Catalyst, what is the data that they manage? Yeah, um, so Catalyst was uh, created uh, about 16 years ago um, with the idea that we'd be able to put together voter files. So for folks that may not know, the voter files that are available are usually state by state. They are not in the same formats. They do not contain the same amount of information. And putting all that together into one national file is a a chunk of work that is something that we haven't really done in the past at the time the CALS was founded. The DNC had just gone through and done some of this work, but they were able to service the campaign side. Catalyst was built out to kind of service the nonprofits and the labor unions and other folks that um, couldn't partake because of finance reasons and, and other things of that nature. So we started out by building these voter files that covered all 50 states. Then we started adding to it commercial data and other things to fill in the gaps and to create a better profile of the individuals that we have on the file. And then being a data-centric company, we then started building models off of it so that you can actually make inferences about people's behaviors. So your route to now chief data officer seemed like it took quite a number of steps in different roles inside of Catalyst over a decade. Can you kind of trace that a little bit? What were you doing in the different roles? What were you learning along the way? I think this is something that I usually tell folks that start a Catalyst. Um, I'm one of the few folks that have actually worked in every department within Catalyst over the, the tenure that I've had there. As I mentioned in the, the interview earlier, I came in working on the, the admin team, the finance team, filing papers, doing some of the accounting stuff there. And then there was a need for someone to kind of help the analytics team and also the client services team with some of the projects that were going on. My background in having worked on campaigns was something of use there. And since there was you know, a little bit of space, um, I was able to kind of work in tandem with them to do some of the projects that were there. Some of it was voter registration work. Some of it was around polling um, and understanding some of the polling work that was getting done for our clients. But over time, it went from being that admin assistant into a role where I was an account exec. I was servicing mostly the pollsters, Analyst Institute, a couple of the other entities in the space as their account exec at Catalyst. Uh, And then that kind of morphed into being uh, one of the first uh, data services engineers at Catalyst, which was a hybrid role where you were half account exec, but then also writing SQL code, writing bash code to try and service some of the, the more complex things that some of the subscribers and folks needed. Let's stop on that for just a sec. So obviously you're picking up some skills on the back end with SQL and and things like that. Were you like growing in your interest in what Catalyst was doing? Were you feeling close to the clients? What was going on in your your mind as you kind of traverse this ladder? 
Yeah, definitely. Some of what was happening was the melding experience. Um, as I mentioned, you know, from working on campaigns and having managed campaigns, the the idea of thinking about polling from different angles was something that was very interesting to me at that point in time. So, you know, I'd always been on the receiving end of getting cross tabs from a pollster or helping them create the instrument that we needed for that campaign. But then flipping over and thinking about how do you actually pull the sample? How do you actually get a stratified sample? Or how do you actually get a sample that is representative of the populace that you're trying to pull was something that was also of interest. So that kind of geared me towards some of the things that I was getting more and more interested in in terms of the data side. So pollsters are wanting to get a sample of voters. So they're using your voter file, Catalyst voter file, to sample randomly or even more complicated than that to find the the people that they're looking for to get a, a sense of public opinion. Did anything surprise you about the kind of requests you got? Or is there anything that you think people should know about sort of that relationship between catalysts and pollsters? A lot of times the polls that people want to field, you need the data. You need to be able to have that the the full picture of what a district or what a populace looks like in order to make an accurate poll. And then beyond that, the quality of the data also matters significantly. Folks are used to doing phone polls. If the phone numbers you have on the file are, are not of the highest quality, you, it's going to make your incidence rates and make the other things that you would look at in terms of a normal polling project um, that much more expensive or that much harder to get the contacts that you need. Okay. So what was next? So um, out of that, I uh, began using a lot of the software that Catalyst produces. And with that, got more interested in some of those things. So I ended up becoming the director of product management at Catalyst, where I was working with the CTO, the director of software applications, and some of the other folks on the, the tech team in building out the software that we currently have and some of the things that we've uh, had in the past. What are the kind of products that Catalyst puts together that you oversaw or helped move along? Yeah, I think there were two main things that folks usually associate with Catalyst, the Q and the M. The Q is a querying interface where folks can have access, a point-and-click interface that you can go in and kind of get access to the Catalyst data run some cross tabs, get some counts, export lists, those kinds of things. The Catalyst M is a matching tool where uh, folks can actually take their own list and put it in and match it against the Catalyst file and get back both the Catalyst ID, which is DWID, but also append data from the Catalyst file. So it's kind of a way of like rounding out a list, if you will. But. I have come across some of the political tech entrepreneurs who have used Catalyst as kind of a back end to some application they were building. Is that still going on? And tell me about how that works, if it is. Yeah. So one of the things that um, we pride ourselves in is kind of being open to as many partnerships as we can. Um, we want to make sure that the community has access to whatever tools they want to choose and, and build off of. I'll go all the way back. Van is a good example where there are underlying data that, that Cal's provides to van so that the folks that are using the America Votes van or the State Voices van or even the AFL-CIO LAN have the Catalyst data surfaced in there. Um, you know, there's a myriad of other uh, integrations that we have, PDI as well as Action Network and others have been some of the ones that, you know, are more recognizable name-wise, but we try to pride ourselves in, in getting as many of these set up and, and getting Catalyst data in as many platforms as possible. 
So are there lots of little ones also that attach to it? There are, I would say, a significant amount of, of ones that come up. There are some that are homegrown. There are some that folks are trying to build out. CTA is a big one that we're working with now. There are other ones that uh, are in the works. I can't say too much about that yet, but a lot of the incubators that you see out of things like uh, HGL and uh, other uh, incubators like that are ones that we're working with to try and get Catalyst data into it as much as possible. One of the curious things about the democratic and progressive data ecosystem is that there's Catalyst and then there's other sources of voter file data. How do you guys view the competition or coopetition or whatever it is out there? And what, what else do you see as sources of that kind of information? What's different or the same? Honestly, I think we see them as partners. There are a number of other entities out there that are collecting voter files, that are collecting commercial data. And what we've found over the last couple of years is that by partnering with them, we can actually increase the coverage and what we're able to provide to the community. I'll point to something we did last year and in 2020 as well, where we partnered with TargetSmart on doing cell phone acquisitions. We are always open to partnerships and looking for those as much as possible, but we see them more as partners than competitors. That sounds like a bit of a turnabout because there's been challenges in that relationship that we're both aware of over time, but it seems like it's for, for the best if maybe you're both cutting costs by cooperating on, on phone acquisition and things like that. Yeah, I think we've turned the, the corner with any kinds of relationships that we've had in the past. I think the big thing there is not so much about cutting costs as it is just getting most of the coverage out there. We have different sets of clients that use the Catalyst file versus others as the base file. And what we're trying to do and really get out there is make sure that whoever's using or whichever entity in the progressive space needs the data can actually use it and be able to run their programs. In the time since you've been either aware of Catalyst at Hillary, because Hillary used some Catalyst data through all of your decade plus there as an employee. What's changed about the data that's been available? What is new and, and better? And what, what's sort of the trajectory? So I think one of the things that has changed is just the availability of some of the underlying demographic data and some of what folks think is base data. We were talking about the voter files earlier. You know, one of the things I'll flag is that Folks usually think of things like birth date or race um, as things that, of course, it's on a voter file. Why wouldn't they? But the truth is the majority of those voter files don't actually have them as things that are reported on the, the official voter file. So they have to be either acquired commercially or modeled. Race is a good example where our analytics team builds a set of race and ethnicity models uh, in order to fill in those gaps and give folks the, the profile that they need in order to do targeting and micro-targeting, et cetera. I would say the other thing that uh, has shifted is folks are beginning to recognize more and more the importance of historical data. The thing I think you're intimately knowledgeable about uh, looking at historical data and, and thinking about what those trends can predict with some of the organizations that you founded. But I think that's something that the community is beginning to look at more in depth and kind of delve into in a real way. I certainly have some interest in historical data and, and sort of showing it graphically and things like that. What do you think the value would be of historical data for people now? So I think some of the historical data is useful in terms of 
thinking about what their future behavior is going to be. In modeling, one of the things that folks often say is that the best predictor of your future behavior is your past actions. So the likelihood that someone's going to turn out to vote, the likelihood that someone's going to support a candidate or even split a ticket are the kinds of things that you know your past behaviors can be indicative of. Beyond that, I think that you can also find certain trends. Over time, you know, folks look at vote share, folks look at what was the the electoral makeup of the 2020 election versus the what we expected to be in 2024. And thinking about some of those things and analyzing those can help with messaging or understanding where support is waning or where support may be bolstered. So what is the role of the chief data officer at Catalyst these days? So my role often is about trying to visioneer and think about what are the next set of data sources or what are the things that we actually need to be thinking about as a community ahead of needing it. Obviously, the the rest of the team works on processing the voter files, getting them out, doing all the commercial weaving and all that stuff. But my day-to-day tends to be aimed towards thinking about what do we need next or what are we actually aiming for longer term? What sort of things are you aiming at? What sort of, what, what is your vision? Well, the biggest thing that I would say for this year in particular, the biggest thing has been data privacy regulations. One of the things that folks may or may not be aware of is that uh, more and more states are starting to pass statewide regulations around data and what data can be kept about an individual and which organizations can actually maintain some of that data. What of that has bearing on the data that you have at Catalyst about voters? We're in a unique position where a lot of the data that we have been collecting is public information or is available from public source. So we've been able to uh, maintain the integrity of our file in, in the way that I think that commercial folks may not have been able to or will not be able to moving forward. I would flag that you know we have a group of folks internally at Catalyst that are dedicated towards uh, monitoring and, and ensuring that we're in compliance with all the state laws that are being passed. And we're keeping up with you know all of the various legislations that are coming across or being uh, considered in each state legislature. But it is a, a hefty amount of work since it is a patchwork of the 50 states rather than a national uh, regulation, if you will. Is there an example of a law in a state that you guys had to be on top of and maybe keeps you from sharing some data that you have? We, we haven't run into anyone that actually is preventing us from sharing information in that way. I would point to something similar, which is the idea of restricted records. In many states, you have a set of records that are, for whatever reason, redacted from the voter file. These can be various reasons, either the folks that are registered voters are part of law enforcement or part of you know things like witness protection or other types of things where the security of that person is paramount. And those kinds of records get redacted from the file. And they are, are they redacted so that they don't come to you, but or it sounds like they do come to you and then you have to not share them or how does that work? So what you often get is something along the lines of a first name and last name with all the other contact information being redacted. We know that those people exist. We know what the total number of voters should be there, but contact information for the person or any of the the demographic information may be redacted depending upon the states that do that. So if I'm in the witness protection program, which hopefully I don't have to go into, and I want to go vote, is there anything different about 
that for me? Do I just go to my regular precinct or how does yep. it work? So I, my understanding is that you're still a registered voter and that the folks that are working the polls would still have your information there. And I would be probably a false name. Unclear how you would uh, get registered through that. But, you know, by and large, I think the difference there is you're talking about state run elections versus the secretaries of state making that data available to third party entities. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Catalyst is seen as that third party. The state has to take into consideration people's privacy and, and some of the things there and protect them. So I think that's what the states do there. But in terms of actual, actual voting, I think those folks remain on the rolls and are able to vote in the way that they would normally vote. If I'm a celebrity or something, can I apply to have my address redacted? Or is there a process for this in different states and who could qualify? So I think there there is a process varying state by state. There are some celebrities that I think have redacted information for various reasons. And a lot of times it has to do with restraining orders as well and things of that nature. There are varying reasons why someone may be redacted, but a lot of them come back down to legal. I don't think that anyone who isn't steeped in it can understand the complexity of all of the situations that can occur in a voter file in a 300 million person plus country, right? In, with 50 states and other territories, there's always other craziness. What are a few things that come to mind that people wouldn't be aware of? Well, one of the biggest things that I point to, and this is kind of why we, we pride ourselves in being able to match records, both at the time and then longitudinally, is that folks move around. You can be a registered voter in multiple states at the same time. You just can't cast a vote in multiple states at the same time. People often will move. They don't tell the Secretary of State to remove themselves from the voter rolls. So they are an active voter in two or three or four states, depending upon how often they move. So things like that happen. One of the things that we're able to do with the Catalyst file is actually connect those people and link them across states and across time and make sure that the information that you have from one state carries over. One of the eccentricities there is that states don't really talk to each other. So if you were in making this up, but if you were in Virginia in, say, 2020, and then moved to North Carolina in 2022, your vote history in Virginia may not necessarily follow you, or doesn't follow you, really, into North Carolina when you're on the North Carolina file, but Catalyst is able to match and link that so that you have a better profile of the individuals. Does that mean you have the ability to detect that somebody has voted illegally in more than one state at the same time? We haven't seen that, and we don't really look for that per se, but at the end of the day, what we are doing is just linking records. I would also flag that no matching system is perfect, so you really don't want to use that as like a, a metric to try and identify things like that. My experience is that every matching system is very imperfect, despite uh, how much work goes into it, just with the way names are and the number that are very similar or exactly the same. and juniors and the thirds and spelling differences, but it, it still seems like a kind of a curious thing to be able to look at that. And then you could do more research. Have you guys ever been asked to provide that sort of information to anybody who's investigating voter fraud? We haven't been asked to provide that kind of information to anyone doing voter fraud. We also hold that matching algorithm as IP that we don't really want exposed for various reasons. In our matching algorithm, we tend to err on the side of caution. So we try to not link people together if we're not a 
very certain that they are the same person. There is a system called ERIC, which I assume you're familiar with, a consortium of states that do exchange this kind of information about moves so that they can help get people registered in one state and make sure they come off the rolls in the other states. Do you guys work with that at all, or is that done completely separately from? ERIC has been a separate system. With that, I think what we've seen is that there are a number of states have been withdrawing from ERIC over the last couple of months here, um, which has its own set of concerns. But as you said, no matching system is perfect. So I think there are some questions there, but we haven't really been involved with that. So we can't really speak to it in any real way. One of the topics that's come up on this podcast and beyond over this fall in particular has been the use of artificial intelligence in new political tech. Is that something that is happening at Catalyst and among the entrepreneurs that use Catalyst data? What, what do you see going on with respect to that? Yeah, so what I would say is that we're keeping our eye on you know, the developments within AI. There are still some limitations in what's available there, computationally, as well as you know just what data is underlying it, those kinds of things. One of the biggest concerns that we are trying to take into account is ownership of that data and again, privacy of individuals for folks that upload a data set into something like ChatGPT or something like that. The regulations around who then owns that data and what the redistribution of it looks like, I think is something of importance that folks should pay attention to. There is utility to it though. You can get some skeleton code out of it if you really are looking to process something. I mean, you can help answer some basic questions or get you in the right direction towards answering some of the things um, as we go through it. But yeah. How big is Catalyst now? How many people work in there? We're about 80 people at this point. Um, You know, it's grown a little bit over the last couple of years, but um, in the grand scheme of things, still relatively small, but. Well, it's a lot bigger than it used to be. Bigger than it was. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Catalyst is the sort of business model, the way it's organized being different than some of the other entities in the space. We have a variety of them that deal with data and progressive politics. What kind of entity is Catalyst and how does that affect your employment there and and how you think about it? Yeah, so Catalyst is officially an LLC, but we are owned by a trust. Some of the stakeholders within the community actually came together to create Catalyst labor unions, nonprofits, progressive organizations help found Catalyst. And the trust uh, means that we don't actually take a profit in the way that most for-profit companies do. Any revenue that we generate at the end of the year has to get invested back into the company in various ways, but there are no real stockholders that are taking large dividends or large paychecks out of it and anything like that. Um, I think that's one of the things that differentiates us from some of the other entities in the space, just that structure that we have there. It also means that the company can't be bought or sold. We're not a, in a place where you know venture capitalists are going to come in and have you know their say or try to like take over um, because the company can't be bought or sold. And then lastly, I would also point out that uh, we're also unionized. Um, that's something that is, I think is also a differentiator here in that The staff moved to unionize, I think it was probably two years ago, maybe three, but we voluntarily recognized it. You know, a lot of our clients are labor unions and it is part of, you know, what makes us unique. Did unionizing change anything? The day-to-day work hasn't changed. 
I don't think that it has fundamentally changed anything, you know, from my perspective. I think for staff, they have a bit more visibility and they, you know, have some processes there that weren't there before. But by and large, I think things are more or less the same. Have you ever thought it might be nice to have stock in the enterprise that you work for for over a decade and have some ability to have an upside from that, that people do have at an LLC or corporation that isn't owned by a trust? So I, I can only speak for myself on this one, but um, not a catalyst to try and make profit, trying to do some good work. That's always been the mission. That's why folks work on campaigns. The money isn't the thing that, that drives people. It's the passion for doing the right thing and helping people. So when you think about your future, much as you can share on a podcast, do you think, oh, I'm a lifer at Catalyst? Do you aspire to a second or third career after this? Are you going to go back to playing poker? What do you see looking into the future? Well, you take the uh, the hands as they're dealt, you know, don't know what's going to come in the future. I would say that I'm looking to stay at Catalyst as long as I can do something good for the community. No real plans and beyond that. What's been a highlight for you over your stint here? What have you seen happen that got you really excited? I guess one of the biggest things that happened was in the 2020 election when we had a project that was going around basically evaluating election results that were coming in and doing a bit of election protection work where the community kind of galvanized together. And actually, you know, we had folks coming in from different organizations, partnering with us, working with us to kind of help bolster the DNC and, and the Biden campaign and other things that were, you know, happening at the time. But it was a community effort that was energizing is the best way I can put it. We have another presidential election coming up. 2024, again, looks like absolutely critical for the future of the country. What's Catalyst's role as we work closer to that? Yeah, as always, we're here to support whatever efforts are needed. In the the past, we've had, we've worked with the DNC, we've worked with the sister committees to kind of provide whatever data we can or what is needed. The sister committees, you mean the DS, the, the Senate DS, and the, the House, DCCC, the yep. governors, et cetera. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, you know, various there. We also work with candidate campaigns as needed, um, but we're here to you know supply whatever data and whatever support we can. And that's kind of the role that we fill here. What should I have asked you, Russ, that I haven't? The biggest thing is probably what's coming with the data. You know, we, we, we talked a little bit about data privacy. One of the, the big things here is a shift that's that I think is going to come is the shift from thinking about individual level data to aggregate data. And what I mean by that is we have, for better part of 15, 16 years now, really tried to drill down on individuals. We need individual level models. We need to know about individuals there. But we also are now in a spot where digital primacy is taking foothold and that our ability to collect all of that individual level information may be obfuscated for privacy regulations or for other reasons. And being able to make sense of uh, data at a geographic level or at a bit higher than the individual is something that I think the community needs to start thinking about and getting prepared for. That's kind of coming full circle because Catalyst is really born out of the move from, say, precinct level data 
about voters to individual level data. Kind of an ironic move if that's what's coming. Yeah, I think that's that's just rolling with uh, the times now. What will shift is that the idea of you know these precinct based things that we have seen in the past will move around. You know, we are going to look at DMAs. You're going to look at other types of geographies or districts, school boards, something that's more hyper-localized than the precincts. These districts or these other geographies may cut precincts in half, may cut counties in half. And understanding some of those nuances around the kinds of campaigns that are going to be run and what is of interest to some of the folks in the community in that way is, I think, the, the thing that will drive us in the future. It's great to get the chance to catch up with you after all these years. Anything else you want to say? I think that is more than enough. (laughs) Okay. That was Russ. He's at Catalyst.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.